the skill of writing, I think, is really important to be a good designer. And we've been lucky enough to have Johnny Ive come into the class a couple times, once virtually and once in person. And um, it really surprised me the first time he, he talked about it, but he essentially starts all his projects with writing. He feels that sketching, oh, wow. you know, is, as, as sort of free-flowing as a sketch can be, it's still too constraining. You can't convey a lot of the emotional parts of a product. Hey guys, welcome to Product Explain, a show where we talk about products and the company's history and strategy behind them. This season, we invite experts into the field on the show to dive deeper into products they love. Uh, I'm your first host, Jeff Lee. And I'm your co-host, Mike Alcazarin. Today, we're joined by Eli Woolery, Senior Director of Design Education at Envision. Envision is, quote, the online whiteboard and productivity platform powering the future of work. At Envision, Eli works to help Envision's education and marketing teams develop and share design best practices to guide the software industry. In addition to Envision, Eli also helps coordinate and host the Lou Lecture Series at Stanford. This series brings together people from a wide variety of backgrounds to explore the intersection of design, technology, art, architecture, and science. And to round things out, Eli also co-hosts the Design Better podcast, which was nominated for a Webby in 2020. Eli, welcome to Product Explained. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Us too. We're super excited for this one. And, you know, Eli, when I was doing some research before this episode, you have a really cool background. It's a super unique career with sprinklings of photography and entrepreneurship and a heavy flavor of design that seems to to tie things together. But as a, as a diving off point, I listened to an interview that you did, and it sounds like you spent some time after college in Bermuda as a scientific diver. Uh, tell me more about how you found yourself diving <laughs> in Bermuda. Sure. Yeah. So um, rewinding back to the 90s when I was graduating from undergrad. So I I did the undergrad project design program at Stanford. And it's funny because now I teach in the program and I kind of, you know, give some of the same advice to my students that I wish I had back in the day. But back in the day, it was maybe even more pronounced because not many people knew exactly what product design meant. They were familiar with industrial design and they're familiar with mechanical engineering. But product design at the time was sort of this blend between the two. We didn't have as much of a kind of software focus as we do now. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, so, so kind of selling yourself out in the real world once you graduate was tough because people were really usually at entry, a more entry level looking for either a industrial designer or a mechanical engineer. And like I said, we're mm-hmm. sort of a hybrid of those two things. Um, but we did have this really strong foundation in what was called human centered design, which we still call that design thinking, human centered design. And so, you know, to some degree, I think students that are, can lean on that more than the necessarily like deep expertise in any one part of the design craft tend to kind of sell themselves a little better. But I didn't really know that back at the time. And I was, <laughs> I was hoping to get a job in sort of the outdoor world, whether that's, you know, climbing or surfing or whatever. But I was, I was, again, just having trouble kind of like selling my background. And I, learned of this opportunity in Bermuda. They were looking for an intern, basically, to help them with some AutoCAD renderings. And I had some experience in AutoCAD. And it was more of a civil engineering than than mechanical engineering job. But I thought, what the heck, I'll give it a shot. So (laughs) I went out there um, to the the Bermuda, was known at the time as the uh, Bermuda Institute for Ocean Sciences, I think, or maybe that's its current name. But they're basically a research facility, you know, located in this kind of unique environment. Bermuda's 
one of the northernmost coral reefs in the world. And it's got a very healthy reef. It's been well protected. It's not as diverse as some of the reefs that you might find in, you know, the, the tropical kind of uh, eastern Pacific. But, but really, you know, healthy corals. And I, because everybody there was involved in research and science and diving, I got, I got interested in that and ended up becoming a certified research diver. So I would go out and help the teams, you know, do their research, um, whether that's studying sort of corals or fish surveys, that type of thing. And uh, yeah, really, really enjoyed that. It was, it was a fun year. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, really fascinating to, to have that background. Have you been able to pull through any of those lessons, like as you're like, you know, alone under the water, you know, to just <laughs> your, your current career? Um, gosh, good question. I think, you know, what it did teach me, and, and I, I'll extend it by saying that I, after that experience, I felt like I wasn't really using my, my education. So I came back to the States, I went to a company called Light in Motion, where I was designing underwater photography equipment. And it was the guy that founded the company came through my program as well at Stanford. And uh, that did use my experience to a really large degree. In fact, it kind of felt like a master's program because we were a vertically integrated manufacturer, um, oh, which nice. in our case, we meant actually, we actually built the stuff in-house. We had a machine shop on the ground floor with injection molding and CNC uh, machining uh, tools. And so we could, as design engineers, come up with a prototype and bring it all the way to manufacturing in one building. So I learned a ton there. And then I also got really, you know, continued the diving, sort of got into photography since we were doing these underwater photography housings, but also had the curiosity about science still. And so I ended up leaving after four years and going back to get my master's in marine science. And I I maybe could have learned this lesson in, in Bermuda, but it really got drove home in, in, uh, when I was <laughs> doing my time in Mount Moss Landing. I'm not a scientist. I just don't have the right temperament, I think, for for science, um, you know, you have, you have to love the sort of field work portion of it, which I did, but you also have to at least be adept at navigating all the kind of bureaucracy and grant writing and, you know, all the various statistical analysis you have to do that part. I totally didn't, didn't love that part so much. So, <laughs> so the thing I learned through those two experiences was, I was yeah, I'm better off in sort of the design and creative realm than the scientific realm. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I know there's something magical about taking a design that you're working on and actually you know, going to a machine shop and, and quickly iterating on it and like realizing that like, oh, that's not going to work uh, or, or like having that aha moment. So I, I love that. I've got a quick question before we jump into the next one, which is, mm-hmm. um, do you still dive today? And what is like maybe the, the coolest dive you've done of late? Yeah. So I do. I don't scuba dive much these days. I mean, I have young kids and so my time's kind of limited and the whole like getting tanks filled and all that takes a long time. So I do free diving and, um, and I don't tell my underwater photographer buddies this much, but I spearfish. <laughs> That's sort of a no-no in the underwater photography community for for good reasons. Um, but I do it in a you know very sustainable way. The guy that taught me works for Fishing Game, so you know only target very you know sustainable species. But um, but yeah, I mean just this weekend I was out diving and uh, with some buddies. And my buddy shot a pretty big link cod that got away, unfortunately. <laughs> and I got a cabazon and some rockfish. And yeah, just being able to sort of harvest your own food in a sustainable way it makes you feel a lot more connected to sort of the ecosystem and versus getting it in a styrofoam package. Totally. Totally. Cool. Shifting gears a little bit. So obviously you're now an instructor at Stanford and you teach ME216 BNC. 
um, which is kind of this like well-known product design capstone course at, at Stanford. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what that course entails? And I'd mm-hmm. love to hear about some of your favorite projects that have kind of come come through the program. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so the program itself has been around since the late 60s. And like I kind of mentioned before, it's sort of, it sits in the mechanical engineering department, but we're actually redesigning it and we're moving away from that. And we're kind of merging with our D school, which I don't know if you guys are, or your audience is curious about that, but I could talk about that too. But, you know, when I started, certainly in my career, and when I started teaching 10 years ago, there was much more a focus on physical products. But as you all know, software is eating the world, as Mark Andreessen says. And so <laughs> most of the jobs are in that arena and most of the student interest is in sort of the digital space. But, um, you know, the, the capstone itself is a two-quarter class where essentially... Uh, students make up their own teams and they come up with sort of a user group and focused area that they're interested in. And then they'll go through the whole design process. And it's, you know, it's definitely constrained in such a way that you, you might not do this as, as you guys are product managers out in the world, you know, going through a design process for a new product or feature. But we're trying to give them a grounding in all the various kind of tool sets that you might use when you're actually out there in a real world world role. So it starts with a lot of user research and need finding and then goes into prototyping and testing. And and the goal is to get the product out into the real world, sort of in air quotes. Um, and that means a range of things. It can be, you know, the very small minority of the students actually do make it into an entrepreneurial venture. And I have some teams I can talk about in a second that did that. Um, most of the students, you know, treat it like a class project. And then they'll sort of open source at the end or, you know, give it to a community that that's that's interested in it but yeah I, I think you know it's definitely a fun class to teach because there's such a range of things that that people can work on and uh, yeah happy to talk more about some specific projects that's interesting yeah i think i got a chance to stop by one of the end of semester or capstone presentations at one point and it was just cool to see all the different ideas that this generated i, I think I, i've told mike this before but what's really amazing about watching college kids just explore is that like nobody's told them no yet in the world. Like there's no, there's no such thing as a budget or like any yeah. sort of real limitation. So giving them this sort of like blank slate to just kind of like do whatever and figure out what they can and can't do is pretty inspiring. But yeah, I'd love to like maybe if you can pick like your one or two favorite projects that have come out of that course, like would love to hear about what made them interesting or was there anything particularly unique about how they approached the the capstone? Mm-hmm. For sure. So I'll, I'll talk about a couple recent and the, they're probably biased towards more recent ones because they're fresh in my memory. But um, mm-hmm. one that came through in these last few years was called Tangible. And the, the guy that started is named Akshay Dinakar. And it was a really interesting need that he identified in his, in his team at the time um, where, you know, there's there's so, there's a sort of plague, I guess you'd call it, or, or boom of, of loneliness in the world. Even though we're so digitally connected, oftentimes it's like like us here, we're talking you know, across screens from potentially thousands of miles away, and which can lead to feelings of isolation. And that was, that was really accelerated during the pandemic. And so this project that he started was this idea of how can we provide a connection for people that are at, at a distance, essentially. And he built a cool prototype during class and, and then decided to carry on with it. And his more recent version of it, you can find it on, on Kickstarter. And I don't know if you guys have show notes, but you could throw, I provide you guys with a link for that. But it, it's essentially this pillow that lets you sort of kind of simulate human comfort, human touch at a distance. 
And it's really cool to see how that's how he's continuing on with it and how there's so much interest in the project. Another recent one uh, is a project called Sequel, and it was started by these two female athletes in the class that that realized there's a need for essentially tampons for female athletes that were you know more protective, more absorbent. And they did a ton of research, talked to material scientists, and were just super, super persistent and smart and really entrepreneurial. They ended up moving out of our class into an entrepreneurship class because it was just a better fit, but we've kept in touch with them and they've, you know, raised some significant funding and are carrying on the product. And it's, it's a really interesting, challenging product because it's essentially a medical device. So there's a lot of kind of regulatory hoopholes, loophole or regulatory hoops you have to jump through, hurdles you have to go over, but they're doing great. And it's just really neat to watch them. I think they were named this year Forbes 30 under 30, both of them. So yeah, those are two recent ones that, that stick out. That's incredible. That's really awesome to hear. For folks at home that like don't get a chance to go through the whole capstone experience and be in uh, two sixteen B and C, like tell us about some design principles, some of your favorites that people should know. Like how should people be approaching design if they're maybe new or haven't gotten a chance to really explore it or get like a safe space, like a capstone class to actually like you know learn about design? For sure. Yeah. So. You know, there's a ton of resources out there and I, you know, I've, I've been able to put some together during my time here at Envision. If you go to designbetter.co, there's a whole library. I wrote a little book called the Design Thinking Handbook, which just outlines a lot of the tools that we teach the students that are human-centered. But outside of those, some ones that are are maybe a little more unique and, and interesting, if you're already familiar with that. I mean, I think curiosity is a real fundamental you know, trait of, of all good designers, just a curiosity about the world, a curiosity about people about disciplines outside design. So I think that's that's pretty fundamental. Um, one that I've, I've more recently identified is, is a, the skill of writing, I think is really important to be a good designer. And we've been lucky enough to have Johnny Ive come into the class a couple of times, once virtually and once in person. And um, it really surprised me the first time he, he talked about it, but he essentially starts all his projects with writing. He feels that sketching, oh, wow. you know, is, as as sort of free flowing as a sketch can be, it's still too constraining. You can't convey a lot of the emotional parts of a product, and and uh, so he starts everything with writing, which I think is, huh. is really interesting, given obviously how, how well known a designer he is. And then one other one, which I'll just touch on, which we we were, my colleague wrote about in a recent book we put together, is this idea of having empathy for your colleagues. I think. A lot of people that are in the design realm understand empathy for users, empathy for customers, but they don't often turn that to kind of internally to the people on their team or the people, the kind of cross-functional partners they work with. And I think having empathy and understanding their roles of those folks is really important also to be a, a good designer and good teammate. Yeah, like I, I want to just kind of opine on the the last piece, the piece around empathy. I think something that has been more and more apparent to me as I've kind of progressed throughout my career is how important like EQ is versus IQ. I think like obviously having really smart, intelligent people is important, but those that can't work amongst other people just makes it that much harder. Like you might have a a major weak point that can be shored up with somebody else that it's a strength for them. And if you don't have the EQ to collaborate with that person, it just makes it that much harder. So I think that is where you get like some of the whole is greater than its parts sort of behavior when you can actually know how to work with people, know what motivates them, know like what they're like, what makes them click, uh, what they like to do, all those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we, we often in our, in our role here in, or on my team at division, we talk about things like leadership and hiring. And I think, 
you know, the skill for hiring you know, the right people is so much more often on chemistry. And like you said, EQ than on the specific technical skills that somebody has, because you can, you can teach somebody most of the technical stuff, but if they can't participate on a team, and I think in a lot of ways, the remote or hybrid environment makes that even more challenging. Like if you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody, you can kind of smooth over some of the rough stuff, but people that, that are, are somewhat abrasive or harder to get along with, it just, it just sort of like accelerates in a remote environment, makes things difficult. Absolutely. Some of that nuance gets lost and just not translated when you're in the, the 2D version of humans instead yes. of the, the full 3D in-person version. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I wanted to also click on the, the writing. That's one skill that I never thought I'd be using as much as I am today. And I think it's absolutely underrated. And it's interesting that Johnny Ive also took that, uh, you know, blank piece of paper and write it all down approach just for some context like at amazon we don't do any powerpoint presentations it's all six page white papers and that was very jarring for me when i joined but my mantra has become clarity of writing is clarity of thought like if i'm writing really crisply and writing clear clearly i know that i'm thinking really clearly as well and able to articulate that so um, i love that you <laughs> you bring up writing yeah for sure and i've heard that about amazon as well and i think it's it's pretty cool practice you know and i think Obviously, there's some, you got to give some leeway for people that are maybe not English as a first language, it might have more challenges there. But I think as long as you, again, build it out of empathy for colleagues, for somebody who might be coming from a different background, I think I think it's a really you know, powerful tool to start a project off with. Totally. Well, switching gears again, I'd love to you know hear more about your work at Envision. I love these opportunities because it's, it's a really good chance to get an insider's perspective on, on how things are, are being built and you know uh, look under the hood. Um, I think a, a bit of a two-part question is for our audience that might not be familiar with Envision, I'd love for you to just you know give the high-level description of what Envision is and the, and the pain point it's solving, and then also talk about what makes the tool unique. Absolutely. So just to give some historical context, Envision has, has sort of evolved over the years I've been there. I've been there a bit over six years now. And when I started as a user of Envision, I was very much, you know, using its prototyping capabilities. Essentially, at the time when it was first started, it let you really rapidly prototype something from Photoshop, essentially, which was one of the major tools we were using at the time, or Illustrator, and then turn it into a clickable, you know, mock-up, essentially, that, that people could walk through. So that was our focus for a fair bit of time. And then we started building out some ancillary tools to that. I would say that there was a sort of battle waged amongst the screen design tools over the past, you know, five, six years. And, you know, at first it was Sketch. And then, you know, well, sorry. At first it was these these tools that weren't even meant for screen design, really, like Photoshop and, and Illustrator. Mm -hmm. And then tools like Sketch came onto the scene that were designed sort of from the ground up as a screen design tool. And then Figma came along and added in this sort of real-time collaboration element, sort of like Google Docs, where you can all be in the same document at the same time. And that really, you know, that really took the lead. And, and you know, to be honest, we tried to build a competitive product, but it, it kind of fell flat. It was, you know, a little bit too, too little, too late. It was called Studio. And the, we just didn't recognize all the technical challenges, I think, that would be involved. And so, you know, we're in a, we're in a place now where... We realized that essentially Figma has kind of won that battle. We we have a product called Freehand that we've been developing kind of in, as part of that product suite that we've turned essentially all of our attention to. And it's it's a remote collaboration tool, a whiteboard, or we like to call it a workboard because it goes beyond whiteboarding. But 
the, the idea with, with our tool is, is essentially to make a place where people from these different you know roles and personas can come in it's not just necessarily even the product team but legal team hr can all come into space and review work and work together and one of the things that's that i think makes it unique that we're going to be talking about more in the near near future is this idea of sort of interconnectivity between apps so you could say have sort of visual representation representations of one of the apps you're working with connected to another app and you know in sort of a low code no code way get those apps working together in a centralized space and so i think that kind of thing there's other platforms working on that but i think as far as sort of workboard or whiteboard tools none of the other players are, are really as focused on that portion of it so we think that's kind of a unique yeah a unique advantage that we have at the moment and then there's a second part to your question what you know my work is my team's work and so i was brought on as sort of the first member of the design education team under my boss at the time aaron walter and our our kind of initial mandate was to help elevate the role of design in all different kinds of organizations and again rewinding about six years or so you know design was pretty well recognized as a as a strategic advantage at a lot of the big tech companies certainly apple google facebook many of these you know many of these big players had already you know invested in and recognized the importance of the design team not just as sort of a as a service that you slap on at the end to make it pretty but as a core part of the strategy <laughs> and the product team and you know and building the product so that was true in those companies but in other sort of a you know sort of legacy products for lack of a more flattering term things like banking and healthcare and other areas it was it was not really valued to to a large degree and the teams felt more like they're kind of putting lipstick on a pig <laughs> at the end of something <laughs> rather than having right. a, having a voice in the beginning and say hey why don't we actually understand what our customers want and talk to them and prototype and test and all that good stuff so so our role was to sort of like highlight the st strategic advantages of design highlight design leadership, you know, build communities and, you know, essentially create content that could be helpful to those people. And we did that in a number of ways. We, we wrote these books, which I mentioned earlier, we started a podcast, which, which you all mentioned the design better podcast. We, we initially, we ran a lot of kind of one-to-one -on -one things like workshops and talks. And eventually that got shunted over to a different team. But I think the overall goal that we had was this idea of, of elevating design. And, and I think to some degree, you know, we, we helped push it forward as an industry, like this idea of like a product designer, you didn't really hear that too, too much when I started in the role here and it became more and more common. And I'm not going to credit ourselves, you know, specifically with that, but it was something we were definitely an idea. We were definitely like pushing to the forefront. So I think there's still, there's still a lot of room for kind of growth and, more, more, even more of a role to play for design. And at the same time, I think, you know, m maybe these, we've been a little too navel-gazy sometimes too and realize that, hey, you know, designers kind of think of themselves as special, but it, you're always part of a team and you got to recognize like the other players in the team are playing just as important a role. So for something to work, it's got to be a, you know, cooperative, collaborative playing field. I had a question here about like, what is design education? But I think you dove into that a good bit. So I have a follow-up question, which is, it sounds like part of it is like teaching designers how to kind of lead on the design front, when to utilize design. But 
as product managers, how have you found that like other, you know, design adjacent roles have taken on design education? Like from the folks that aren't pure product designers or like the fir- the primary design education users, like how mm-hmm. have you found this to kind of trickle down or trickle out to design adjacent roles, like the PMs or the engineers or the researchers on the team? Like, gotcha. have you found that they've given you feedback that design education has been helpful for them or how have they maybe changed their uh, workflows and habits around design education? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, it's an interesting question because it's sort of what my role has been pivoting towards is like, we've, we feel like we sort of saturated the design and design leadership world with it, with our content to this point. And we're trying to expose the product to roles outside of design. And so if you look at the podcast, which I can talk more about, but we've sort of pivoted from a real, a real strong focus on design and design leadership to, to more general collaboration and creativity as to whether that's helping people or, or, or sort of like broadening our audience. I think it's a little bit of a mix. I mean, with, with product managers, I think is an interesting case because as, as you both know, I'm sure you often have a pretty good understanding of the design process and often are you know, to some degree practitioners within your team. I'm sure you're helping out with like prototyping and like getting products in front of people and the user research side of things. So I think, with product management and also to, to rewind a little bit, like our, a lot of our graduates from the design program end up being product managers because they have this sort of foundation in human centered design, but they understand, you know, they, they've gone through essentially some engineering training. So they understand like the engineering mindset to some degree too, and can kind of bridge those, those disciplines. So I think there's, there's been some amount of success there. Engineering is, I think a little trickier because it's just, you know, there's a, a very specific, I wouldn't say there's a specific, you know, a specificity as to what they're interested in, but I think the way that they, with the audience receives their content is maybe a little different than designers and product managers. And it's definitely more quantitative than qualitative most of the time. I mean, not always, so there's, there's certainly a spectrum, but I think more often engineers going to want to know, like, give me the most direct route from A to B versus, you know, <laughs> why, you know, like the philosophical ramifications of it. And again, I'm probably offending and generalizing a lot and what, you know, two of my brothers are engineers and probably arguing with me about that, but, uh, <laughs> but Je- Jeff and I escaped, but Jeff and I are both mechanical engineers by training. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, we'll I dig, dig ourselves out. Right. And I went through, you know, again, some of that training myself too. And, and so, but I, I wouldn't consider myself a great engineer, but I think I kind of understand, you know, the, the persona a bit. Um, so yeah. So, and then beyond that, sort of like the more broad kind of organization where have we made strides, it's, certainly in, in marketing and certainly the creative side of marketing, but beyond that, the, the more quantitative side, a little bit there, but yeah, we're still, we're still kind of experimenting and, and figuring out what, what kind of audiences can we serve with the, our education content. And, you know, I guess I'd love to hear more about, I guess, how the, the podcast, the design better podcast got started. You know, it, it sounds like you're experimenting on just, you know, becoming that thought leader for design education. But I'm curious on the the origin story and, you know, how, how it's been going so far over the mm-hmm. past few years you've been been running it. Yeah, so it it was interesting because I think part of the reason that Aaron was interested in talking to me, because I just reached out to him randomly on LinkedIn. I was, I was looking for a new role and, and he saw that I'd been doing, sort of had a side project working on a podcast of my own. I hadn't gotten that far with it, but I, I kind of knew a little bit about it and was experimenting with it. We started it again with that same mission of just trying to to elevate design as a as a discipline across all types of organizations. And I would say, you know, I think as far as 
you know, a sort of business sponsor podcast goes, we've done very well. And I think part of that was just, you know, the investment from our executive team and because it took, you know, a year, maybe a year and a half before we really had real traction. And I think that's, that's true. A lot of these sort of content marketing initiatives as you, they, you don't often see a immediate return on investment. So, um, they they stuck with us and, and we kept at it and, you know, our audience kind of grew slowly, slowly at first and then, then a bit more quickly. And as we started to get some bigger kind of names on the show and, and now we're, you know, typically ranked in the top 10 of the design podcasts out there, at least is ranked by Apple, which is kind of a weird ranking system, but then the top, you know, half percent of all podcasts globally. And again, podcasts is really long tail. So there's millions of podcasts out there and a, a sort of minority of them grab the majority of the, the listens or downloads, but we feel like we're, we're doing pretty well and we want to keep, yeah, keep growing and keep getting more interesting people on the show. Yeah, that's awesome. I think we're definitely in the same like space. We've been doing the podcast for, uh, I don't know, like a little over a year now. And we've kind of noticed the same trend where it's like kind of this slow and steady growth. And if, you know, month B is better than month A, we consider it a win, even if it's small. It's just kind of this like consistency game. I want to chat about like you, you mentioned already and you kind of alluded to this around how design practices have kind of changed over time because there's been more of a focus on software versus before there was like industrial design and a mix of mechanical engineering in there. How do you think that design in software is unique, say, compared to like traditional uh, product design a lot like Don Norman? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm sure you're both familiar with this topic, having some background in both arenas. But one of the things is just obviously you can instantly distribute software, right? There's no, there's no barrier versus having to ship a product out. And that there's also, you know, low, lower costs, much lower costs associated with prototyping and iterating a product. I mean, if I'm looking back on my physical product days, I really do miss like actually being in the machine shop and machining something and putting product together and like holding it in your hands and then knowing that some version of that's going to end up in somebody's hands. You're going to be using it to take photographs somewhere in the world. And, that's really exciting. And, and also the fact that it's done, right? You're done. It's out the door. It's not <laughs> right. like t- tomorrow they're going to come back and say, Oh, can, actually, can you fix this for me? Although sometimes obviously there's warranty repairs or things that go wrong. Yep. And yeah. that's also, you know, part of the stress, honestly, is that you can't just say, Oh, here's, you know, version 1.2 and ship a software update to somebody when it's, when it's a physical product. So, so yeah, the, the sort of lower cost and faster iteration there, I think is one of the biggest differentiators between the two. And, that's it. A lot of the fundamental stuff is this is similar from the design side of things. Just you know, understanding your user and being able to get a prototype in front of people and and getting feedback and and iterating. There's a lot of overlap. So I say if you if you're from one and you want to go into the other, there's not a huge barrier to entry other than just convincing a company that that they're that, that those <laughs> skills are transferable. I love the that you mentioned like the satisfaction of holding something physical. Um, during the pandemic, I, I picked up carpentry. I used to do it a ton growing up and I kind of lost, lost touch with it. It's been so satisfying to, cause you know, all I do at work is, is you know, send emails and move pixels around. Mm-hmm. It's actually nice to, you know, carve something or like have the struggle of, you know, I made a hole too, too small or too big and I have to, to, to fix it and get that troubleshooting brain going. But the past three years feels like three decades <laughs> with the, with mm-hmm. the pandemic. Um, I, I'm curious, like how you see your customer base evolving um with just all these new challenges and just 
I think hybrid work as well as remote work is more prevalent. So I'm, yeah, just curious your take on how the the landscape for your customers has evolved. Yeah, for sure. And I, I can speak to that kind of both, you know, from a broader view and then more personally, but from a broader view, obviously resources are going to be more constrained. There's not going to be these big investments and sort of risky initiatives. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like having the podcast when we did and some of these other things we worked on these books you know we were lucky to have it at a time when when there was money to do it and now people are really <laughs> watching the bottom line a lot more closely and i understand that and i think it's probably necessary to have this reset um you know unfortunately i think there there will be some casualties there's some companies that could have survived if they continued to invest in those type of things at least to a lesser degree and that are cutting them out um because I mean, be honest, like a lot of the products we have, the loyalty is there because we really like the story. We like, you know, who's behind it or, um, you know, these things that aren't quite as, as tangible as maybe just like, is this, is this like 10 bucks cheaper than the other one? And so if you're cutting that part of your team out and you're not investing in that, I think your chances of being more successful in the long run are, are probably lower. But yeah, and then... I'm saying that now as sort of a member, I've transitioned essentially from a member of, of the product team to the marketing team, for better or worse. <laughs> and and I think the product teams that are facing these cuts are going to have some some similar challenges. And especially as far as just, um, you know, having to take on a lot more in your role, mm -hmm. there's going to be more, more of that. So, you know, as far as challenges, you know, on a, on a more personal note, I think I've seen a lot of friends recently, we, we had envisioned how to pretty big round of layoffs towards the end of the summer. Basically half the company got laid off and I have many friends at other companies that have faced similar things. And so, you know, my, my heart goes out to those folks. I'm, I think they're all landing in good places, but certainly it's a time of a lot of anxiety for folks and, mm -hmm. and you know, just want to be empathetic towards that. But these things are cyc cyclical. So hopefully in the next year or two, we'll be back on the rebound and companies will be growing again. So, um, yeah, so there's that to look forward to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's transition to our lightning round of questions. Um, you know, we'll we'll start off with some some fun ones. I, I love these. We'll do what's the worst product that you've ever used, and then what's the best product that you've ever used? Worst product. So <laughs> I don't know if this is totally the product's fault, but we've tried every different kind of like bark stopping device for our dog. Our dog is like a <laughs> small Chihuahua Terrier mix. It's like somebody tried to optimize for the most amount of barking you could package in a small dog. And she, <laughs> she's embodies, embodies that. And so we've tried like the ones that like squirt cit citronella in her face, you know, the ones that are supposed to be ultrasonic. We even tried for a little bit, the ones that emit like a shock. And it was, it was awful because you'd see her get shocked. And then the one that we had sort of ramped up and you would see, she would just continue barking oh, and no. like, eventually just like, almost convulsive and felt <laughs> no. super cruel yeah. like that's not that's yeah. not working anyway so none of those products I, I would think are worthwhile at least in our experience um and maybe that's not have you tried that. the okay. no totally um we, we my wife and i just got a um mini australian and she's also very barky the mm. the, uh, the smaller the dog i feel like the, the higher density <laughs> of barking I, yeah. I don't know if it's a, <laughs> i don't know what the ratio is or how that works but we found like a, a tin can with quarters mm -hmm. and just like shaking that every time she barks no oh, okay. she hates that sound yeah um so i don't know if that works it's, it's definitely like more manual like and you have to be there if like while she's barking yeah. um but that has worked like a charm <laughs> okay well i'm gonna try that and it's a lot cheaper than these other things we try we it's funny because when you know we have little kids and 
when they're both little, when they're crying, we had the shaker that we would use to kind of distract them. So that's maybe a similar, similar concept. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got an older, larger dog. So the barks are less frequent, but they're scarier. Like they're deeper. Mm-hmm. Like she, she doesn't attack anybody, but it's just, they just sound scarier. So yeah. I just given up. I think like, <laughs> at this point, I'm just like, it's going to happen. I, I just need to figure out something else, but totally. What about yeah. the best product? So best product. So as you mentioned, I, I spent some time as a, professional photographer and so spent more money on photography equipment than I probably should have over the years. But um, <laughs> I, when I started out, I was mostly doing film stuff and I still have my Leica M6 film camera and it's just, it's beautifully engineered. And as far as a product, like that's just, you know, a joy to use. It's just so simple and elegant. And um, if you ever want to see the results of a, of a Leica camera at its best, I would look up uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson the French photographer who was his main camera, not the M6, but an earlier version, but it's just, yeah, beautiful device and really fun to use. That's awesome. Um, on that similar note, if you were to suddenly be like the top 1% at any one skill or profession, like what might that be? You've, you've got a, already a pretty storied like background, which is really interesting. I don't know if there's anything else you haven't tried, but if <laughs> there was that one thing, what might that be? Oh gosh. Well, yeah. So I, I feel like I'm in the situation where I've, you know, like, jack of many trades master of none but um but <laughs> I, if i was the top one percent i was thinking about this when you sent over the questions and it, it's a hard choice between surfer surfing and writing like some I, I would have to flip a coin but either of those would be they're both passions and love to be at the top one percent that's awesome I love that's that. amazing wait it sounds like the perfect like pair though like if you could pair that you know just like right. find some awesome surf spot and just like write like it's yeah. like first half of the morning is surfing last half is i feel uh, like if hemingway writing. was born like maybe a couple <laughs> decades later then hemingway right. would be an awesome surfer right yeah <laughs> instead of like running of the bulls it's running of the 100 foot waves yeah. off yeah. of like Nazare, <laughs> Portugal. Yeah. yeah i love it and if you could put a billboard up anywhere what would it say yeah so this is another one i, I was thinking about and the first thing is like some it was kind of generic but it's just say be kind but i think to go a little deeper, I would put up assume good intent because I think too often in our disconnected, disembodied online world, we always assume the worst of people when they say something. And we've obviously seen the sort of disastrous consequences of that in a lot of ways. So I think assuming good intent and assume somebody was, was meaning the best when they said something is an important place to start kind of repairing our kind of fractured, <laughs> especially social media landscape. But elsewhere too totally social media is that microcosm of just all of that like people assuming those poor intentions but i, I love that uh, assume good intent um well eli where can people find you uh, any anything that you want to plug or any call to action for our audience yeah well i'd love it if you check out the design better podcast if you haven't yet it's on all the major platforms if you want to go to our site it's just on designbetter.co um i mentioned this book that i recently wrote with my co-host the collaborate better handbook that's free. Check it out. Um, also on the Design Better site. And then if you have any questions for me or want to connect, I do, you know, I do a lot of mentoring uh, to folks that are getting started in their careers. And if you want to, if you reach out to me on LinkedIn, just let me know where you heard about me. Um, I'm there on LinkedIn. Easy to find. Um, just if you look at Elijah Woolery. And yeah, those are the, those are the things. Awesome. Well, that was a ton of fun, Eli. Thanks so much for the awesome conversation. You know, we, we really appreciate it. So thank you so much for, for coming on. 
So mm-hmm. we'd love to hear from you, our audience. Let us know if there's any products or product experts that you would like to see on the show. Feel free to share with us what you thought about this episode. You can reach out to us at Instagram and Twitter at Products Podcast. That's P-R-O-D-E-X Podcast. Yeah, and if you like the show, be sure to like us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, etc. And let us know what products we should review next or who to sit down with next. See you next episode.